A reading from Mark, chapter 10, starting at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, the twelve, again he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink this cup I drink, and be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you, Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road.
Well, good afternoon. If you'd like to keep that uh, passage handy, we will be following it as we as we go through. Um, so uh, it's it's Mark chapter ten, verses thirty-two to fifty-two. And um, but before we get into it, um, I don't know how clearly you can see that on the screen. Um, think back to perhaps when you were a bit younger, if you became a Christian when you were a bit a bit younger, and the sort of classic um, things that people would put in your way and say their objections to Christianity. Um, and in fact, as you get older, you find actually that people tend to be less vocal about it at all. They just tend to be a bit sort of shrug their shoulders. But if people ever get put on the spot, uh, there was an author here uh, who's actually put together a book called The Ten Most Common Objections Against Christianity. Um, and they follow the usual pattern of the kind of things that you would see. Um, I don't believe that God exists. Um, what about evolution? Um, how do I know the Bible is really true? Um, what about all those errors in the Bible? What makes Jesus different from all the others? Surely all paths lead to heaven. How can a loving God send people to hell? And what about all the evil and suffering in the world? Now with a lot of those, they tend to be quite factual things that, generally speaking, uh, you can deal with. But actually the last two are the most interesting, I think. All Christians are hypocrites, aren't they? And the final one is, I don't believe that I'm a sinner. I'm not too bad, am I? And those actually are probably the most difficult objections to deal with. Because, in a sense, one of them looks at actually Christians themselves, who, let's face it, often let the side down, don't they, in terms of how Christians behave. And the other one, the final one, is, well, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with me in the first place, is there? It's quite difficult, isn't it? So actually, the passage today does actually squarely hit those last two objections. Now, if you're thinking that's a rather daunting list, actually, in truth, I, uh, I did a debate at a, about 20 years ago um, uh, where we looked at the evidence for the resurrection uh, it, it was a Birmingham Christian Union uh, debate. And at the time, I was doing quite a few different cases in court. I have to say, it was one of the easiest cases that I'd ever done. Because the evidence is there. The evidence for the resurrection, the evidence for the fact that Jesus exists, is so incontrovertible that the argument against it is extremely difficult. But these moral questions, the moral questions about believers, and the moral questions about sin, are actually really the heart of the real reason as to why people object to Christianity. Now, Jesus was very aware of this. So actually, you see in his ministry him confronting these particular issues. And we're going to look at Mark 10, 32 to 52, under three headings today. Firstly, the problem with Christians. Secondly, the problem with blindness. And in this case, actually, blindness to really sin. And thirdly, the solution that Jesus offers. So firstly, we begin in Mark 10 by looking at Jesus predicting his death. Now Jesus uh, talks quite openly, the most openly he's done so far, about what is going to happen to him. You go back to the Old Testament, most of what he says there is already predicted in the Old Testament. That he's, the, the Son of Man is going to go to his death and, and, and face an awful death, um, and, and, but he will rise again. But there's extra detail in here that actually 
Jesus hasn't revealed before in Scripture, certainly not in Mark. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. These are details that he has not revealed before. Now, you imagine that you're a disciple walking along the road with Jesus. You've been with him for two years. He's talked to you. He's discipled you. He's healed the sick in front of you. He's fed the 5,000. He's done these amazing things. And then suddenly the mood becomes somber as he walks towards Jerusalem. And you see, actually, um, Jesus is leading the way. And the disciples are astonished. And they're afraid because they sense something is up. So you might think they might sort of say some voices of concern to Jesus. You know, how are you doing, Jesus? It's, this, is quite, this is quite big stuff. You know, what's really going to happen? Is that what happens with the disciples? Well, let's read on. And James and John, sons of Zebedee, said, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Is that really the thing to ask a man who's just predicted his death? It's a very strange thing to do. But then I guess they've been with Jesus for two years. They've seen Jesus do the most amazing things before them. They know that he's got the power. And maybe they've got this idea that he's going to be this great conqueror, this great victor. And they want a piece of the action with it. So how does Jesus respond to it? Does he slap them down? No, that's not the way of Jesus at all. What does he do? He says, what do you want me to do for you? It's a, it's, a, it's a fair question. It's a gentle question to the disciples. And what do they reply? Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Followers of Jesus, and they want their own personal glory here. It's a remarkable thing, really, when you think about it. It it's actually shows a complete lack of understanding. If I may use an illustration, tw- 21 years ago, um, uh, some friends and I uh, went on a trip to New York City um, and we went, we stayed there for several days we did various sites around New York and one of the things, one of the sites that had to do back in the year 2000 was to go up the Twin Towers because you could get the best view over the whole of New York uh, they had a, a, a viewing platform at the top of it and we went up there one night and they were singing New York, New York it was amazing, it was probably the best place ever to sing the Frank Sinatra song New York, New York Now, sadly, the Twin Towers has become synonymous with one of the greatest tragedies that's happened this century, because it didn't exist a year later after I went. Now, one of my colleagues um, wrote a piece last month, or one of my former colleagues, I should say, wrote a piece last month, where he reflected on how close he came to perishing in the Twin Towers. He was supposed to be meeting somebody there that day. Um, He'd got on a train to go there, and the train was late. And he missed his connection. And he ended up not being there at the meeting when the first jet flew into the Twin Towers. Now he reflects on the fact that he escaped almost certain tragedy. He would have died, almost certainly, if he'd been in there at the time. Now is his reflection one of glory, seeking glory for himself, for the fact that he was the one who escaped? No, not at all. He is one of the most grateful people in the world for the tragedy that was narrowly avoided his life. And actually the truth is, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we are the ones who escaped through the flames. And actually, the mindset of the disciples, because they simply didn't see, they didn't understand, 
is so different to the mindset that actually we should be having as believers. Let's go on. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking for. He says, can you do what I'm going to do? So when he says, can you drink the cup that I drink, what does he mean? What does he mean by the cup that I drink? Well, he's talking in the sense of the task that he's going to have to do. And we all know what that is. He's going to have to go to the cross to bear the sins of the world on himself, the Son of God. Can you do that, disciples? And then also, he says, or be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with. Now, when we talk about baptism, when we hear about baptism, I don't know about you, but I think back to my uh, Anglo-Catholic background, where it's cute cherubic babies being sprinkled with water in fonts, isn't it? That's sort of how, well, that's how I grew up with baptism anyway. Um, I guess as I got a bit older, actually when I did actually have my proper baptism when I was 14, that was a proper immersion in water. In fact, it was at Fox Holly Swimming Baths, I seem to recall. Um, but the, the reason why we here do full immersion baptism is because it actually signifies properly what the kind of baptism that Jesus here is talking about. We're almost in the sense that you're going to death, that you're being so overwhelmed. It means an overwhelming of the waters. But the beauty of baptism is that you come up again. It's new life that comes out of it. And that's what Jesus is predicting. He's predicting going to the cross, and he's predicting his resurrection. So, disciples, can you go through this? What are they saying? We can, they answered. I don't think they really understood what Jesus was saying here. And Jesus said to them, because Jesus is very gracious and compassionate, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism baptism I am baptised with. And sadly, what was to happen to James and John is indeed they were to be, they were to be murdered for their faith. They, they, and, and, and they were to go to Jesus with glory. So they were to face that. But, as Jesus said, the place in glory is not reserved for you. To sit at my right or left is not for me to grant, it's for Father God. These places belong for those whom they've been prepared So what is the problem here? What's the issue with the disciples? Is it an entitlement that they feel as followers of Jesus? Is it perhaps a lack of understanding? Well, I think it's a bit of both of those, really. If you look at the words of Jesus in Luke 9, 23, then he said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. And that actually is the reality of being a follower of Jesus. It's realising that actually, if you become a follower of Jesus, it's not an automatic meal ticket to say, right, you're in glory straight away. You can do what you want. You can lord it over other people. That is the world's way of thinking. Actually, it's hardship. As we heard two, two, two weeks ago, if you want to become a follower of Jesus, it's actually you are signing up to, in some ways, hardship. Because you are going to be countercultural to the world. And yet there's a wonderful thing in that. Because Jesus starts to unpack when the others come back to him as to what that actually means. Because the other ten, the other ten disciples have heard James and John butting to the front of the queue and say, hang on a moment, hang on a moment. What are, what are they trying to get themselves? We, we would like a place in glory too. Jesus calls them together and explains. He says, 
You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. And actually, it's interesting how he he makes this distinction here, because he's saying the Gentiles, in other words, those who are the secular authorities or whatever, yes, absolutely, that's how it works with them. When you get to the top of the tree, then you have the right to lord it over other people and exercise authority. And anyone who works in, in business or in organisations, that's generally what happens. And all the nice people you saw that were your peers when you were going up the ladder suddenly start lording over them, and they will change, don't they? And that's, that's the way of the world. That's what happens there. But there's a contrast to here how Christians are supposed to be. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So this is quite against the prevailing culture that Jesus is saying to his disciples. Because if you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. And if you want to be the first, if you want to be the top dog, you've actually got to be a slave. You've got to reduce yourself to the lowest of the low. Because actually the reality is, is that Jesus himself did that. Jesus, son of God, right to lord it over the universe, what does he do? He comes to serve all by giving his life as a ransom for many. And what do we mean by a ransom? Well, it's it's effectively he's paying the price that we should be paying for what we've done wrong, and he's taking it for us by going to the cross. He's the ultimate example of service. So you think, well, that that sounds all quite difficult, that is. This idea that we've got to serve people, and it sounds a bit bit wearing, really. But actually, it's a really powerful thing to the world. There's a a writer called Adam Grant, a secular writer, who I I follow on LinkedIn, and he writes some really good stuff. And he wrote a really interesting thing this week. Sorry, I haven't put the quote up. But he said that if you do um, a good turn for someone, Actually, the way it works in human society is you shouldn't expect somebody to to do a good turn back for you. Actually, um, if if somebody does something nice, if somebody serves you, actually the best thing to do is to pay it forward, to show kindness to other people. And that's actually the natural effect. When you serve somebody, it actually creates a gratitude. So if you do something good as as a believer and you show that you're genuine, uh, and actually, the best thing that we can do for people who we know is to tell them the best news in the world, the gospel. That's a kindness to them. That's serving people. Um, and the, and the, but the reality, it is going to cost. Because the world out there, by and large, as we'll go on to see, is largely blind. They're blind to the gospel. They don't see the good news that we have. And so actually, sometimes we are going to face some embarrassment with how they do it. It's, it's going to be against it. But in doing so, we are serving others through it. So this objection that all Christians are hypocrites, actually, if Christians behaved like Jesus taught them, that actually they were people who served others, who were gentle, compassionate, kind, show them, but ultimately point to the way that they're doing it. It's not because they were good people, but because 
they were served first by the, by the creator of the universe. And that's a really, really powerful thing and a really powerful message that Jesus is teaching his disciples. See, there's a blindness here to the disciples. But he's saying, look at his example. He was willing to come and give his life as a ransom for many. So in a sense, we're called not to be like the guy on the left-hand side, the CEO who's made it to the top of the tree, who's sitting there lording it over. That's not what we are to be as Christians. Actually, instead, what we are to be is the, those firefighters, or firemen as we call them over here, who went in to the Twin Towers. I don't know if you've ever read the accounts about what happened back then, but they got the emergency calls that a, that a plane had gone into the building. And they actually abandoned, in many ways, a lot of the protocols that they had because they knew that there were people in there who were going to die if they didn't go and rescue them. And they went in, and tragically, many of them lost their lives. But they went in with that desire, that heart, to save others. And that is what we are called to be as Christians. We're called to be people who have less care about our lives than the lives of others. And, that, and that's, that's a daunting thing, but it's a wonderful thing too. Uh, that, 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 that is true service. So we move along the road. We get to Jericho. And we have the beggar beside the road. The blind man, Bartimaeus. This is, a, this is an actual picture of him. This is how someone has imagined he would look. As Jesus and disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, it's interesting how Bartimaeus, um, there's a very interesting use of the word here, because Bartimaeus actually means son of Timaeus. So he's like saying, Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, uh, was sitting by the roadside. Why why does Mark see the need to repeat the name of this, this man? I mean, it's, it's incidental, surely. Well, actually, there's a reason for it. Because Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, the word Timaeus actually means honour. So Bartimaeus is the son of honour. Now, what is it that the disciples have just been asking for? They've been asking for honour. They've been asking for recognition of their special place. And here we have the next incident that happens in Mark. We have a blind beggar by the side of the road, the lowest of the low, who's described as the son of honour. Now, why is this name given to him? Why, why of all people, this blind man, who, and of course in those days, if you were blind, all you could do was beg. You, you, you were lucky to eat. You were in a dreadful, dreadful situation. Now, of course, what happens is people rebuked him. Now, he said, oh, be quiet, be quiet. And yet he, he doesn't give up, does he? He's persistent. It's interesting how persistence is quite a, a thread that you see from time to time in the New Testament. Son of David, have mercy on me. He shouts through the crowd, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops and he says to the disciples, call him. So they go over to the blind man and say, cheer up, it's your lucky day. On your feet. He's calling you. 
And the, and the blind man, he knows this is it. So he, his one protection he's got is his cloak around him. And he said, I'm not going to need this anymore. He throws it away and he jumps to his feet and he comes over to Jesus. Jesus says to him, verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? Now, we've heard this before, haven't we? Go back to verse 36. What does he say to the disciples? What do you want me to do for you? He asked the same question to both. But note the difference in response. The blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus' response is immediate. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. The fact the man trusted in Jesus was enough. Immediately he received his sight. And he doesn't walk off at this point. No, he follows Jesus. He follows Jesus along the road. It isn't just a, a, a physical healing. Actually, there's a sense that it's a spiritual healing as well. Because he recognises that Jesus is special. Because Jesus healed him. And he had the faith that Jesus was going to do that. Rabbi, I want to see. And the interesting thing is is that this blind man, who hadn't spent two years with Jesus, he hadn't, he'd just been there on the side of the road, he had more vision as to who Jesus was than the disciples. And that's really interesting, isn't it? So he actually had clarity of vision where the disciples does not. And, and Jesus' response is, your faith has healed you. And that's so often the response that we see Jesus, where he recognised his faith. It's like the woman touching Jesus' cloak, and she was healed because of her faith. Bartimaeus was conscious of his blindness when the disciples were not. You've probably sort of seen this sort of uh, image along the road. Sadly, as the, as the months creep by into autumn, this, this picture of driving along a, a foggy road is going to be um, more and more prevalent for all of us. Um, and yet we think back to those wonderful moments in the summer where the road ahead was clear. We, we, um, we had the pleasure of going up to Keswick um, in the early parts, one or two of others, the rest of you did, um, at the beginning of um, the summer holidays. And we had these wonderful views, a beautiful clear road ahead as we drove along. And that's the difference that Jesus is saying. For those who, who truly see and understand who he is, the road ceases to be foggy. Suddenly there's a great clarity ahead as to what's going to happen. And that's the effect of the Holy Spirit opening blind eyes. Because most people out there are actually truly blind to see that actually their sin, everything they do, cuts them off from God. And yet all they need to do is to have the faith to trust in Jesus. And he will open their eyes. And the road ceases to be like that ahead. And the road becomes clear. And that's Bartimaeus, in a very simple way, saw that. So finally, Jesus offers the solution. We go right back to the beginning of the passage, which now seems to make more sense in the context. Is We're going up to Jerusalem, he says. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. Now this sounds pretty... This is the king of the universe. This is the leader of... Um, this was the supposed messiah who was coming. And this sounds a pretty ignominious end to him. 
I don't know how the disciples would have reacted to that, to be told that that was going to happen. That doesn't sound like much of a solution, does it, really, for him to be face of death. But the key thing is, you have to add on the last bit. <laughs> Three days later, he will rise. And that is what was promised, and that is what happens as well. Jesus proves that he conquers death. And you see, this is the difference here. Because rather like the people who went into the Twin Towers to rescue people with no great concern for themselves, um, that, that, that in a sense is the model here between, and the difference between um, those who get it as Christians and those who don't. We're actually called to be, to receive faith like Bartimaeus, to have a simple trust in Jesus. We don't need to have great, deep understanding at all. We simply need to have the faith, almost of a child. Said last week, wasn't it? When Bob was preaching last week, that the sim- let the children come to me. The simplicity of the faith shown by children is all that Jesus is asking for. Like Bartimaeus, coming before him and truly understanding that actually the rescue, Jesus has done all the work, the rescue has been done by him. All that needs to be accepted is faith. And if we go back, just to... Here we are. Go right back to there. Look at the two most classic objections to Christianity. All Christians are hypocrites, aren't they? Well, if Christians properly understood and served, then it would make a lot of difference to the world. But this last objection, I don't think that I'm a sinner. I'm not so bad. Well, actually, if we truly understood where we stood before Jesus, the fact that it's necessary for him to go to the cross, it was necessary for him to die in order that we might have life, then actually we'd realise our eyes would be opened to that glorious and true message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that these, that these words were written down for us so that we can understand today what your ministry truly was. And we see ourselves, we admit, in those disciples. Sometimes we do become proud of our status as your followers. And yet that's, that's wrong, because we're only there because we were rescued through the flames. So pray, give us humility. Give us that recognition that our status is only earned and deserved by virtue of what you did for us. Pray that you would help each one of us to just... Serve as you served. To lay down our lives for our friends who don't know you. To show what true compassion means. To show what true service means before you, if we know you. And for those here who don't know you, just pray that your Holy Spirit would open them their eyes now. That rather like Bartimaeus, who had his eyes both open physically and spiritually, that we would receive your Holy Spirit, our eyes would be opened and we would see the truth that actually everything makes sense once we're back truly in relationship with you through what was achieved through your death on the cross. 
We pray that you help us as we go out today to really take this to heart in our, in our daily walk with you.